from Two Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code Podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. I'm Carl Franklin. Each week, we'll bring you stories and lessons from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. This week, we hear from IDM patient Marie Drake. Marie has successfully reversed three of the major negative outcomes of metabolic syndrome, namely obesity, type 2 diabetes, and polycystic ovarian syndrome by changing her dietary habits. I had been struggling with my weight much of my life. Um, I had been a very thin, very unhealthy vegan uh, for some time. I'd also then been vegetarian, and I still kept getting heavier. Then I also ran marathons. I trained for seven marathons, ran five of them, and I ran, I don't know, five or ten like half marathons. I also ran a 17-mile race, and I just kept getting heavier. Does a vegan who runs marathons continue to gain weight? That doesn't make sense. Or does it? So one of the things that has always been around is this idea that turning into a vegetarian will automatically make you a lot healthier. That's Dr. Jason Fung, a nephrologist and the medical director of the Intensive Dietary Management Program. And this kind of stems from the old idea that dietary fat is really one of the major, major drivers of disease. And this idea that saturated fat drives disease was held over from the 60s and 70s. But how did they come to that conclusion? There was a sort of epidemic of cardiac disease in the uh, post-World War II era. You may recall that in 1955, President Eisenhower suffered a major heart attack, and the doctors at the time believed that it was saturated fat, so they completely took all the fat out of his diet. And what happened? He continued to have more heart attacks until he died of one. And nobody really knew what to make of it. And uh, in the 1950s, in the Korean War, what they found was that these uh, American boys, who are 18 to 20 years old, they were being killed. And when they autopsied them, they found that they had these new lesions in their blood vessels, which were really the precursor lesions to these heart attacks. The theory goes something like this. Something in our diet was causing everyone to develop fatty lesions, and those were causing plaques to build up on the wall of arteries leading to the heart. Clots can break off these plaques and block blood supply to the heart, causing a heart attack. And so everybody got very concerned that uh, this this, uh, disease was actually developing very young and for no apparent reason that they could find out. So a lot of money was spent into research, and there's two sort of ideas that led the way. It was either something to do with uh, too much sugar, and the other major uh, contention was that perhaps it was too much dietary fat. And everybody knows which dogma won the day, right? Low fat. Fat is bad. This was an idea that was pushed primarily by a nutritionist named Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota, and then it was taken up in the 1960s. That's Gary Taubes, an investigative science and health journalist. He's the author of many best-selling books, 
including the case against sugar, why we get fat and what to do about it, and good calories, bad calories. And because it was filling a vacuum, this is, in effect, the only subject that the research community focused on. They thought dietary fat causes heart disease. That's the only thing that could cause heart disease. We're going to test this hypothesis. Saturated fats have been more tested than any other nutrient in the diet in the last 50 years. That's Nina Teicholz, award-winning journalist and author of the bestseller, The Big Fat Surprise. Huge randomized controlled clinical trials costing hundreds of millions of dollars. And none of those trials, on tens of thousands of people, none of those trials could show that saturated fats has any effect on cardiovascular mortality, any effect on total mortality, and it doesn't seem to have any effect on heart disease as measured by anything that is, you know, that we consider to be reliable. So no, saturated fats do not cause heart disease. So Marie obviously had the message. Eat more vegetables and don't eat animal fat. Vegan. By the 1970s, we had this uh, dietary guidelines for Americans, which really came down very hard on dietary fat. And one of the foods, of course, that contains a lot of fat are animal products. No meat, no milk, no dairy, no eggs, and for God's sake... Don't eat bacon. Nevertheless, you can look at uh, nations such as India, where there are a lot of vegetarians. And um, while this is sort of imperfect data, it doesn't suggest that they were protected from diabetes whatsoever. In fact, it's one of the countries that has an extremely high prevalence of uh, type 2 diabetes. So what's wrong with being a vegetarian? There's nothing really wrong from an ethical standpoint, but the really the major flaw in its reasoning is that dietary fat was never really the cause of type 2 diabetes or kidney disease. So even as people cut down their dietary fat, there was a sort of explosion of obesity and type 2 diabetes. So, getting back to Marie, by January 2015, she was ready to go low-carb. Marie saw her internist, who was herself into low-carb, high-fat, and had lost about 80 pounds 15 years earlier on a ketogenic diet. And Marie dipped her toes into low-carb, but didn't really commit. I was paleo, thinking I was healthy, but I was eating bowls of fruit for dessert, and my blood sugar and my fasting insulin kept going up until I was borderline diabetic. Wait, I thought paleo is good for diabetes, right? Marie went from a vegetarian running marathons to diabetes by eating paleo? Dr. Fung explains how this is possible. One of the core principles of a paleo diet is to eat sort of unrefined um, kind of whole foods. 
Um, it's not necessarily low in carbohydrates or necessarily low in dietary fat or what have you, but it's trying to get more to a kind of natural uh, diet. And there's a lot of data to suggest that this sort of approach is uh, much more reasonable uh, than a, veg a strict vegetarian approach. There is a difference between sort of a ketogenic diet and a paleo diet in, as this patient explains, the sort of um, acceptance or non-acceptance of uh, fruits and also dairy. So fruits, of course, are natural products, uh, but they do contain a fair amount of fructose in some cases. Um, the other thing is there are a lot of natural starches, so uh, potatoes and so on. They're unprocessed, but very starchy and in certain circumstances may or may not be the uh, best thing for people. That is, people do react to them differently. So the problem with vegetarianism isn't the vegetables, vegetables are good, it's the availability of sugar and starch. And the problem with paleo isn't that foods are natural and that you eat more animal products, that's all good, but you still have access to some sugars and some starches. And of course, that means the real problem is... Is really the excess insulin uh, response. So insulin is a natural hormone. Insulin is not a bad hormone. But what is important is that if you get too much of anything, it runs out of balance and it can cause disease. So that's not necessarily just insulin, but really any hormone. If you have too much thyroid hormone, you're going to get disease. If you have too much parathyroid hormone disease, uh, you're going to get disease. So the whole problem in this sort of obesity and type 2 diabetes is the excess of insulin. So if you don't have those diseases, then perhaps that's not something that you need to worry about. But if you are worried about obesity and weight loss and type 2 diabetes, then those are very often caused by too much insulin in the blood, which is called hyperinsulinemia. And that is uh, what I consider to be one of the core sort of problems of that. So let's unpack this idea of higher insulin playing a major role in obesity and type 2 diabetes. Gary Tobbs explains the history and the mystery of hyperinsulinemia and what it actually does. When we locked into this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease, which happened in the 1960s, um, and the research community in this field was new, nutrition research was relatively new, obesity research was brand new, and the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, wasn't even funding it yet. And again, the researchers, many of them were medical doctors who just didn't, weren't trained to be scientists. They didn't know how to think critically. So they got this idea that obesity was an eating disorder, was a, a gluttony and sloth disorder, a calories in, calories out disorder, and that's the only way they thought about it. Whereas simultaneously, researchers around the world were studying a cluster of metabolic disorders that ended up being identified as being caused by a condition called insulin resistance. So you could think insulin is a hormone that we think of as um, fundamentally working. It's secreted by our pancreas and it works to make our body, our cells in our body, take up blood sugar, blood glucose, and use that glucose for fuel. And that's how 
the medical community tends to think about it, but it turns, insulin has a lot of roles in the human body. It does an enormous number of things, and the, the general role was that it partitions how we use the fuel we consume. So it tells our fat cells to store fat, it tells our muscle cells to burn glucose, it tells our muscle cells to use protein for uh, uh, you know, reconstructing cells and rebuilding. So long and short of it is, you don't want too much insulin hanging around in your bloodstream. It's a fat storage hormone. And when it's high, you can't access body fat. And when it's low, you can. So insulin seems to be a key player in the role of diabetes and obesity. Gary goes on with his history lesson. By the early 1960s, we had the technology available to measure insulin, insulin levels in the bloodstream. And this had never been possible to be done before. And as physicians, researchers started doing this, they realized that obese people and the kind of diabetes that associates with obesity, known as type 2 diabetes, that these individuals had high levels of insulin, that they were in effect insulin resistant. And if they were insulin resistant, that meant that they couldn't use the insulin they were secreting and they couldn't use it as effectively. So this insulin resistance could therefore explain obesity and type 2 diabetes because more insulin is secreted and more insulin is needed to do the same job as a non-insulin resistant person. And at the same time, that high insulin is blocking you from utilizing body fat for fuel. As insulin levels go up, as you become more insulin resistant, you are going to become more of a fat storer than a fat burner. It's one way to think about it. Your body is going to be um, locked into a hormonal state where you're storing fat and continuing to storing fat rather than to use it for fuel. And so this was an alternative hypothesis of obesity that emerged in the early 1960s and that the researchers then simply couldn't wrap their heads around because they had already been convinced themselves that the problem was gluttony and sloth. So they believed there can't be any hormonal explanation for obesity is an excuse for fat people to eat too much and not exercise, and they weren't going to accept it. And despite the evidence continuing to support it in a whole variety of ways, including evidence indicating that this same insulin-resistant condition is uh, increasing risk of heart disease, increasing risk of hypertension, increasing diabetes, uh, insulin resistance is, in a sense, type 2 diabetes. Um, the medical community just kept locked in on dietary fat causes heart disease, and people get obese because they eat too much. So back to January 2015, when Marie was at her internist's office. So when she saw my blood tests, she said to me, you have a choice here. We can put you on metformin and something else. She said, or you can go on the ketogenic diet. She added that nobody sticks to the ketogenic diet. And so for me, those were fighting words. 
And I was like, you don't know who I am, even though she knew exactly who I was and she did that on purpose. I was ketogenic by the time I walked out of her office. ketogenic diet is a very low-carb, moderate-protein, high-fat diet. That's my friend and mentor Richard Morris, the other keto dude. Did you just say high-fat? That's right. It's actually high-fat. You have to be getting most of your calories from fat or it's not a ketogenic diet. What happens is when you give your body mainly fat to burn, it adapts to become very good at using fat for energy. Your brain, which was previously running entirely on glucose from sugar and starch in your diet, begins to run on much less glucose and a new fuel called ketones. Our livers make all of the glucose and ketones we need when we don't eat carbs. We make them mostly from fat. So as long as you don't give your body any carbohydrates, in two to six weeks you become fat adapted and now you are running mostly on fat for energy. Although it sounds drastic, as Dr. Fung explains, a ketogenic diet is really the only diet that will drastically reduce insulin, which, as you remember, is the real problem. So again, if you think about the underlying cause of obesity, which is hyperinsulinemia, this actually falls much closer to a diet that would really start to target this because, again, dietary fat of the three macronutrients, carbohydrates, uh, proteins, and fat, Dietary fat has the least insulin response of all of them. So if you have very little insulin response, well, in a disease uh, characterized by too much insulin, eating more dietary fat is going to have the least impact. And what about Marie's internist who said that people can't stick to a ketogenic diet? The biggest challenge that I faced when I started the ketogenic diet, like most people, was simply I went cold turkey. Like I said, that afternoon walking out of her office, I decided I was keto. I gave up sugar, grains, everything uh, at that moment. Um, So I was pretty cranky for about six weeks, seven weeks. I did not adjust well, uh, at least initially, (laughs) to losing my sugar friend. And my, you know, I was, I loved bread as much as I loved sugar. And I, constantly was I was constantly in denial about how much sugar I was eating because I thought well I'm paleo but paleo can be extremely high starch and it certainly for me was high sugar so that was an issue I didn't get out of denial for a while but but having the withdrawals I did and the crankiness and the tiredness was an indication that I was a complete sugar addict What Marie was experiencing is a classic case of carbohydrate withdrawal, sometimes called keto flu. This is a period where her body was adjusting to a new way of fueling. So she would have experienced some exercise intolerance where you go do some exercise and 10 minutes later you feel a sudden drop off of energy. You have to sit down and then five seconds later you have energy again. This is her body still becoming gradually better at moving fat into her cellular furnaces to be burned. The other thing she was probably experiencing was hyponatremia, was a salt deficiency. Dr. Stephen Finney, who first described nutritional ketosis, discovered that this happens when you lower insulin. Her body was used to being awash in insulin, and insulin causes her kidneys, which filter her blood, to put the salt back into circulation. When you have less insulin, 
it's not reabsorbed, so you need to eat more salt. So taking an additional one to three teaspoons of salt a day is actually recommended during this initial phase to help people get over the keto flu. I asked Marie if she knew about the salt connection. Uh, In retrospect, I didn't know anything about the salt, but my internist did, and she recommended I use a product called E-Lite. It's E-L-Y-T-E. And I did start using that in my water all the time, but it wasn't enough. I now know by listening to various podcasts and reading the book, The Salt Fix, that I was not getting nearly enough salt. And I still have to work on that. That is one of my challenges is to make sure I'm getting enough salt. But my internist was a big um, proponent of using lots of salts because I also was seeing her for adrenal fatigue. And she told me that craving salt was a sign of adrenal fatigue. And because I did have some adrenal fatigue, I needed more salt than most people. Then in addition, when I went keto in late January, 2015, she was adamant that I needed more salt than I thought I did. And particularly because I had, I had an electrolyte imbalance even prior to going keto. So three months after Marie went ketogenic, she found she had this burst of energy that she couldn't explain. In January 2015, I went keto. By March, uh, mid-March, I had so much energy, I started CrossFit. There's another phenomena that people experience when they go ketogenic. They find they have a sudden increase of energy. This happens because in their previous carbohydrate-fueled lives, they made a lot of insulin. And one of the effects of insulin is to inhibit the mechanism by which we get long-chained fatty acids, such as the energy that was stored away in our own body fat, from getting into our mitochondria. These are our cellular furnaces. The technical name for this is the carnitine shuttle. When insulin is low, we turn excess energy into ketones. When insulin is high, we turn excess energy into new fat, we turn off the ability to use that fat locally so it has to be sent off to fat cells to be stored. This explains why you see people who are overweight and have no energy, yet they are still hungry. They can't use the energy that they obviously have. All they can do is turn it into fat and store it. Once they lower their insulin, all that stored energy is available. And you see some people who have avoided exercise for decades spontaneously just get up and want to exercise and they even enjoy it. Even though Marie loved CrossFit, she found it challenging and found she had to take it slower than everybody else. I was in remedial CrossFit, but I had great coaches. I never got injured and I didn't do it five days a week or anything. I was 52 at the time, and I, I, but I did love it. I did it a few times a week. And that's how much energy I had because I also walked a couple hours a day with the dog and I just was bursting with energy. But I started to slide into eating starch and sugar on special occasions. Yep, that happens. Marie was beginning to think maybe her internist was right. Maybe people can't stick to a ketogenic diet. Well, she didn't really know it yet, but the longer you stay in ketosis, the easier it gets. And those cravings eventually go away. But she wasn't there yet. So I sabotaged my new keto lifestyle by quote-unquote rewarding myself 
with starch and sugar on a birthday or on a celebration or with family. I think sugar and starch is so addictive to me that once I started having a little bit of it once or twice a month, I quickly slid into, well, it's the weekend, I get a piece of cake, or it's the weekend, I get a big bowl of fruit with yogurt. And of course, we all know that's a giant load of of carbs and would just trash my blood sugar. But I kept rationalizing it. And so my keto program was half-assed at best. It was still better than than most uh, diets I had ever been on, even though I shouldn't call it a diet, but it really was better. And I was losing weight pretty steadily. I lost about 30 pounds in six months, even doing it half-assed. And my blood sugar, by the way, my fasting insulin, my blood sugar started to go down. It didn't go down very fast because, of course, I was sabotaging myself. So I did not do this perfectly at all. People incorrectly assume that if they just lower their carbohydrates or they have carbohydrates less frequently, that they can do a ketogenic diet or that they can get most of the benefits that come from a ketogenic diet if they mostly do a ketogenic diet. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Our bodies are designed to prefer glucose for energy when they can get it. So if you give them a little, then they're going to wait around for more, and they will start to reverse your fat adaptations while they are waiting, and you will likely start feeling intense cravings for sugar and starch again. If you give them none, they give up and become great at using fat, and most of the cravings for sugar and starch go away. So Marie had lost about 30 pounds by March 2016, and she figured she had another 20 to go. But then, something happened. I was diagnosed with a lobular carcinoma, which is a type of, a rarer type of breast cancer. I was completely freaked out and knew a friend of mine, an old friend of mine from Crested Butte, where I grew up, a friend named Allison, who had been... Uh, diagnosed with brain cancer and was treating it in part with a ketogenic diet, a very strict form of it. Allison put Marie in touch with Dr. Nasha Winters, an oncologist and founder and CEO of Optimal Terrain Consulting in Colorado. After an hour-long consultation with Nasha over the phone, Marie became a little bit more reassured about her chances of survival. It was very reassuring in a lot of ways. Um, it was an extremely thorough appointment. I can't recommend her enough, nor can I recommend enough her new book called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which I've read twice and which I give out now. Dr. Nasha describes that meeting with Marie. She had come to me after having some issues around breast cancer, and the doctors were kind of pushing her to be very aggressive with her treatment, though all of her labs and everything else said that that would be an overzealous approach for her. She actually had some testing that showed she wouldn't be a good responder to chemotherapy or a good responder to even the hormone blockade therapies. I was not a candidate, a good candidate for tamoxifen, which is what they give premenopausal women with breast cancer much of the time as something to as a way to shut down hormone production like estrogen. At 53, Marie showed no signs of menopause, yet this was an estrogen-driven cancer. So they worked together to try to find therapies that would shut off the estrogen. We did the Dutch test. The Dutch test is a hormone test. We did saliva tests. We did blood tests. And I also worked with my internist. She's not an oncologist, but she was wonderful about um, helping me obtain these blood tests that were necessary. 
But while Marie's internist was a big help, her current oncologist wasn't on board with any of it. He was pretty closed about the standard of care for my case. Thankfully, she found support in other medical professionals who officially weren't qualified to give her advice. I was working with Nasha for six or eight weeks before my double mastectomy in July 2016. And that was very helpful. My general surgeon uh, was on board and understood my diet. My radiologist actually was the one who brought up keto. Though she's not really allowed to talk about diet, she was very open about it and said, well, you need to stop sugar. You need to stop anything that turns to sugar in your system. You need to look into this. And then she, of course, couched it with, this isn't actual advice because I'm a radiologist. Since some of the more conventional treatments for breast cancer were off the table, they were kind of left to their own devices to come up with some non-conventional therapies that Marie could use to battle her cancer. Now, she did do a mastectomy um, and that information, you know, so she did, you know, do something conventionally, but her terrain was a hot mess. Her insulin growth factor should be under 100. It was almost 200. Um, She was basically full bore diabetic. She had a long history of kind of polycystic ovarian syndrome patterns, which are kind of like diabetes of the endocrine system. She was coming through a big stressful work life. She was an attorney, so super, you know, high stress world, which also stimulates blood sugar and hormone imbalances. So we knew we had to come at this pretty aggressively with everything we had in our armory. And she was incredibly compliant um, and on top of it and did really, really well, except for the fact we couldn't really get her insulin down and her insulin growth factor down um, very aggressively, despite all of her doing it right on the ketogenic diet. So I referred her to a colleague who actually referred her to me originally to do a more in-depth ketogenic um, diet with her and have her use the chronometer application and really dig in a little bit deeper with her micros and macros to see what we were missing. And within a matter of weeks, if memory serves, this woman who'd been working it hard for over a year suddenly hit the sweet spot in all of her labs and started really thriving, not just surviving, um, you know, a post-mastectomy cancering process that if she didn't get that under control, she would have very easily been in a recurrence um, within a matter of time, given that breast cancer is very driven by high, high insulin, high insulin growth factor, low vitamin D, hormonal imbalances, which she had the whole collection. Now, you might be wondering, well, she went ketogenic and then she got cancer. Hmm. Did going keto contribute to or even cause her cancer? size of the tumor, my oncologist told me that cancer cells divide X number every 30 days and that he calculated my tumor had been growing for 8.2 years. So uh, the other thing that happened was um, I had an insurance glitch and could not get my surgery right away. So between my diagnosis in March, and I was supposed to have surgery in June. And they had to stop it because one of my surgeons was not covered by my insurance. So we had to change surgeons. 
and then I couldn't get surgery until July. But meanwhile, my tumor didn't really grow much, and I, I attribute that to my diet. I can't don't have any proof of that. There was no double-blind study, but people believe, and I'm one of them, that not feeding those cancer cells any sugar or grains, in fact, slowed down the growth of that tumor. So it turns out exactly the opposite was true. It was her previous condition, her PCOS, her diabetes, that perhaps signaled the growth of the tumor in the first place, and her eating ketogenically was actually slowing the growth down. So getting back to the treatment, Marie's fasting insulin was still way too high, and her estrogen levels were through the roof. So both my my new oncologist and Dr. Winters agreed with each other that the best course of action, given my genetics, was to have a total hysterectomy. And so in December of 2016, I uh, had breast reconstruction and a hysterectomy at the same time and the same surgery. But it wasn't until after the double surgeries that Marie really began to take a look at what she was eating and how that might be affecting her insulin levels which were still high. Prior to the surgery in December 2016, where I had reconstruction and a hysterectomy, I had not lost any weight on my ketogenic diet for six months. I totally spilled out. So I went ahead and, and hired Allison Gannett as my keto coach. And we had a couple of sessions. And she convinced me that I was likely in denial about how much uh, carbohydrates I was eating. And I had never tested my blood ketones, and I had never tested my blood glucose. So I kicked down and bought a Precision Extra and started testing the foods I was eating. And boy, had I been in denial. So I had been making a lot of keto treats with almond flour. I had been using a lot of artificial sweeteners, even though they were the supposed good ones, like pure stevia with no dextrose or maltodextrone or any kind of terrible filler. I had been using a little xylitol. I had been using uh, monk fruit extract mixed with erythritol. However, as we all know now, those sweeteners raise insulin. Keto desserts, which of course, they can really be the gateway drug to help you transition from your old life into the new life. But at some point, you want to start letting those things go as well. And Marie had to learn just for her particular pattern. She couldn't get away with it as much as maybe somebody else with a more metabolic flexibility could. And hopefully, and given how long she's you know been at this and how well she responded when she reined it in, she'll be back to having more treats in the future. Um, but we just have to retrain her chemistry to be a lot more metabolically flexible, and she's she's finally doing it. Marie's first roadblock in her journey to lose weight was still depending on stevia and using stevia as a sweetener in her tea and her coffee and her cooking and in her baking. That's Megan Ramos, the program director and clinical educator for intensive dietary management. Megan works directly with the patients at IDM. Stevia still has an insulin response in the absence of a glucose response, but it still has an insulin response. This insulin response triggers our hunger. 
so many of our patients in clinic, so many of our, our clients online, and so many of our listeners who write into Jason and I who are just hitting roadblocks and they're like, you know, Dr. Fung or Megan, we're doing everything, we're fasting, and, you know, we're doing 24 hours of fasting, we're eating super keto, but we're not, we're not losing weight, our sugars aren't coming down, and the fasting is almost impossible. And as soon as someone says to me, the fasting almost feels impossible, I ask them if they're taking stevia or if they're using any other sweetener. But stevia, more so than anything else, is the, the common culprit that is used nowadays amongst our population that's really, really sort of in, inhibiting a, a person's ability to restore that insulin sensitivity and to experience some weight loss. Once I started testing my blood ketones and they were low and I was not in ketosis very much of the time, I could totally chalk that up now in retrospect to the amount of treats I was having. But I was irritated that I wasn't losing weight. So I started looking into intermittent fasting and I started looking into Dr. Jason Fong. Marie went out and got Dr. Fung's books started listening to the Fasting Talk podcast, and started intermittent fasting. I started by eating in an eight-hour window, so I was fasting about 16 hours a day, um, and I was still having coffee, and I'd have some cream with that, so I wasn't fasting with just water and salt. But I was fasting, and I thought, this is going to help. Well, nothing happened. Another roadblock that Marie hit that so many other people uh, have trouble with is the overuse of training wheels during a fast. So training wheels would be things like coconut oil or MCT oil, heavy cream, um, putting in collagen powder into bone broth. So these are some of the common uh, common training wheels, we call them, in uh, our intensive dietary management program to help a person become compliant with the fasting at first. But the idea is you don't want to keep those training wheels on forever. You want to get rid of them over time and just be able to fast on your own. Now in the middle of my 16 hour a day fast, I also had the second surgery. It was, I don't know, five or six hours long and I had to recover from that. Marie ended up with a 14 pound weight gain after the surgery and it took about five weeks to come off, but it did come off. And after that though, she just sort of stayed at that set point. And in January of 2017, I started fasting 20 hours a day and just eating in a four hour window, but... But nothing happened. She didn't lose, she didn't gain. I was irritated by this. After January of 2017, when I hadn't lost any weight after fasting for three months, but essentially doing sort of an OMAD, one meal a day type program, I realized that the course for me ahead was to continue being as strict with my ketogenic diet as possible, but to add in multi-day fasts. So Marie started trying longer fasts. And her first one was a four-day fast. And she got to the end of that and said, huh, that wasn't so bad. And of course, I was fat adapted. So fasting isn't hard when one is fat adapted, or at least that's what I've found. So one of the, the issues was that she mentioned that fasting seemed to be pretty easy for her coming from a ketogenic diet. And this is one of the things that 
people have found consistently. So we have a the intensive dietary management program, the IDM, and we put a lot of people on low carbohydrate diets and intermittent fasting. And one of the things that we've noticed certainly is that if you come from a uh, sort of standard diet to fasting, it seems to be much, much more difficult than going from a very low carbohydrate diet to fasting. And the reason is fairly simple. When you're powering your body from fat, it matters very little whether you get that from body fat or whether you get it from dietary fat. It's all the same metabolism. So therefore, if you've built up your machinery to eat dietary fat, as you go into fasting, it actually tends to be very, very easy because your body is used to burning fat anyway. In February 2017, before Marie reached out to IDM, she went and got a DEXA scan. A DEXA scan is basically an X-ray that divides your body into three components, bone, lean mass, and fat. To her shock, she found that she was almost 50% body fat. Yikes. Ernest, By March, I tried a five-day fast. It was a little bit more of a challenge just psychologically, and then I thought, I think I need more support. So what I did was I signed up for the Remote Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Intensive Dietary Management Program is an online program that provides dietary counseling, education, and support for weight loss. You can learn more at intensivedietarymanagement.com. As soon as I signed up from the first appointment, I had so much support. I really enjoyed working with Megan Ramos and still do. I plan to continue it for as long as I need to. But what happened was I started to lose some weight. Yeah, so when she started doing the fasting, it seemed to just reset something within her. Her her psyche shifted, her cravings shifted, her labs immediately started responding, her ketone testing started immediately responding. It was it was like the missing link for her. It was, you know, some people um, get scared of doing that, you know, and for her, she was definitely nervous. Um, kind of in our world, we're taught you never go hungry. <laughs> and as soon as she did it, I think that, you know, Marie would tell you herself, she's kind of a big convert. I, I loved reading all of her posts in a variety of forums that I watch all over the internet. Um, and she became kind of the biggest uh, proponent of intermittent fasting and really helped people not be afraid of it because it was a game changer for her, for sure. Dr. Fung explains why fasting is the most effective way to lower your insulin. So if you don't eat, then that will maximally lower your insulin because you really can't get lower than zero. So almost all foods, now normal foods that we eat, will stimulate insulin to some degree. So if you want to go as far as you can to zero, then 
fasting is really the way to get as close to zero on the insulin stimulation as you can. So you see that as we kind of go through the vegan to paleo to keto to fasting, we're getting better and better in terms of lowering the insulin uh, response. And this is in fact what the patient uh, saw clinically was that now you start to get really um, the better results. When Marie started doing longer fasts, she started to get keto flu all over again and wondered what the heck was going on. Turned out the answer was salt. She knew she needed to do these longer fasts to get the kind of results that she was looking for. But every time she had tried to do these longer fasts, she would feel weak and dizzy and, and, and quite lethargic. And soon as she upped her salt intake, you know, and she totally thought I was crazy with the salt too, just absolutely thought I was <laughs> lunatic, um, that I told her, the salt, give it a try. And she, you know, felt like she had nothing left to lose. So she jumped in and gave the salt a try and then her fast went beautifully. So finally, after doing extended fasting, Marie was beginning to see some dramatic results. I started fasting five days a week, every week. What I learned from IDM was when I had my days off of fasting to really feast. And by really feast, I mean I upped the fat and I also ate avocados, which changed my life. So the intermittent fasting by itself was a good idea. But she was having cream in her coffee and some other training wheels, so she had to get rid of those. But it turns out the biggest problem was that she wasn't eating enough on non-fasting days. Another um, issue that Marie ran into is a fear of feasting. And this is where we run into so many issues with people. They're afraid to eat. So, so many people out there are terrified of feeling full because they've had this traumatic experience with dieting, with calorie restriction in the past. So now we're trying to tell people it's okay to eat. It's okay to eat. You're eating low carb, high fat. The calories from carbs and the calories from fat, they have very different hormonal responses in the body. It's okay to eat fat to satiation. And what one of the things that makes a person a successful faster is actually feasting. They're eating these skimpy little rabbit-sized meals and they say you need to eat and then they'll say what kind of fasting uh, coach are you? You're telling me I need to eat? Well, eating will make it better to fast and every time they, they roll their eyes at me I can see I can see the hesitation in, uh, in their facial expressions. Um, but when they try it, and they eat, and then they fast, and they lose weight, they're just blown away. So I did that. I probably did six or seven five-day fasts almost in a row. I think I did one four-day fast in that mix, and I took one week off. Now I'm not, uh, I, I think also I ended up a tiny bit burned out from fasting that much. But what I saw was that my inches were changing. I'm six foot one and even though at this moment I weigh 214 pounds, I have a 33 inch waist. I wear size 14 tall and some of them are loose. So I don't look like I weigh north of 200 pounds. So the fasting really started to change the way 
my body composition looked. During this time, Marie was meeting with Megan every two weeks. And on June 9th, she had a second DEXA scan. That DEXA scan showed that I had dropped 10.5 pounds of pure body fat in that time. And I had gained a pound of lean muscle. And how much exercise was Marie doing during this time? All I was doing was walking the dog. And my dog stops at every tree, branch, rock, and pebble when we walk. So it's not exactly a cardio workout, first of all. Second of all, I wasn't lifting weights yet or doing anything like that. So it was very interesting that I proved to myself in my own N equals 1 experiment that fasting actually builds muscle. Fasting builds muscle. Well, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's completely counterintuitive, but it does make sense. Why would your body eat its own muscle when it's perfectly fine fueling itself with body fat? Here's Megan again. Another thing that um, people are often afraid of is muscle wasting. And I don't think Marie was particularly afraid of this, and, but she was mindful to go and have DEXA scans done to assess her body composition quite frequently. And Marie actually gained muscle through fasting. Now, she's always been exceptionally active. <laughs> this woman's always on the go. I follow her on social media as well and, and her pictures, and she's to the extreme. Um, but she's been this way for for her whole life. She's been through hell and back, you know, with her diabetes, her PCOS, obesity, breast cancer. She's just been through been through the ringer. And she's been able to maintain her muscle mass because that's how active she is. And then she started doing all these longer fasts. And most people just think that these longer fasts must mean that you're muscle wasting. Well, Marie has a DEXA scan to back it up. So she's done lots of five-day fasts, some longer, some shorter. Um, but she's constantly doing something week in and week out. And she's actually had her muscle mass increase without a dramatic increase in her physical activity. Everything's been about the, the same. And uh, this is something that so many people are afraid of. But when you have all this excess body fat, your body's going to use it before it's going to go at your muscles. Excess body fat is just stored energy that hasn't been used. It's just leftover energy that you never burnt off and it's just sitting there waiting to be used to be burnt. Dr. Fung always says this in clinic to patients and I think it's one of the best analogies um, out there to describe this. If you're at a cabin in the woods and it's minus 40 out and you're freezing cold and you want to make a fire, you're not going to hack up the sofa or hack up the dining table or the coffee table to throw into the fireplace and and build a fire. You're going to go outside and get get some fire from that massive pile of firewood that you have sitting outside. So your body's going to utilize all this excess energy before it starts to eat away at your muscle mass. It just doesn't make sense. So Marie's been a great example um, at building great body composition, decreasing her body fat percentage, and actually increasing her, her skeletal muscle percentage without altering her physical activity whatsoever, and just through altering her diet and through her fast. So the other thing that happened that's super important is my blood tests. At one point, I had very, very high C-reactive protein numbers, which are an inflammation marker. 
So two and a half years ago, before I even started keto, I think they were 14. They were very high. And my blood tests in June of 2017, my C-reactive protein is 1.0. Oh my gosh, um, you know, she probably told you this herself, but Marie's um, C-reactive protein, a big, big marker of inflammation. And in fact, it's also a prognostic marker in breast cancer and many other cancers. And by prognostic, I mean that it kind of tells you how the outcome could be. So the higher the C-reactive protein, the worse the outcome, the less likely that person is to recover from this disease. In case you're keeping score, cancer-free, significant weight loss, no more diabetes, no more inflammation, what else? One of the interesting pieces of the puzzle for me that was inadvertent, especially because I wasn't planning on having children in my 50s, <laughs> but I had had PCOS since my early 20s. And when I had the hysterectomy at age 53 in December of 2016, they biopsied all of the organs they took out. So they biopsied fallopian tubes and ovaries and my uterus. And everything was negative, thank God. But one thing that was a little bit remarkable was that there were no cysts on my ovaries. Dr. Fung explains how PCOS fits into the metabolic puzzle. It's a little bit technical, so get out your pocket protectors. So polycystic ovarian syndrome is very interesting because it may very well be another disease of hyperinsulinemia. So insulin is a growth factor. That is, it shares a lot of um, similarity to something called insulin-like growth factor 1, which is, uh, as the name implies, a growth factor. So when you have lots of insulin, you signal the body to grow. And that makes a lot of sense because remember, at its very core, Insulin is a nutrient sensor. So there are several uh, of these nutrient sensors that are being kind of increasingly discovered. Um, insulin, when you eat, insulin goes up and your body senses that there's nutrients coming in. The two things that tend to uh, go up, that, that cause insulin to go up, is proteins and carbohydrates, mostly carbohydrates. Um, something called mTOR is another nutrient sensor, for example. So a nutrient sensor uh, that's more specific to protein. So even when you eat small amounts of protein, the mTOR will sense that there's nutrients coming in. And the reason that these are so important is that uh, evolutionarily, they're actually quite conserved. You find them in very, very uh, simple organism. And it, it makes a lot of sense because it, you don't want to grow a lot of cells if you're not eating. If it's a time of famine, say you're a yeast uh, cell and you're in a place where there's no nutrients, you don't want to keep dividing because you're just going to die. If it's a time of famine, then you're not eating uh, very often and your insulin is going to be very low, your mTOR is going to be switched off, and you sense that and you want to stop cells from growing. So you, you cut down all of these sort of growth hormones. And polycystic ovarian disease is a disease where you have excessive growth of these cysts. So one of the very interesting hypotheses, and this is by no means medically certain, is that you could perhaps use a ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting to lower insulin. And in the case of fasting, you get kind of a double effect because you're affecting 
both of these nutrient sensors at the same time. So not only are you lowering insulin, but you're lowering this mTOR, which is a very uh, ancient uh, nutrient sensor as well. When you're on a ketogenic diet, you're really only affecting one of these pathways because your insulin may go down, but your mTOR does not because you're still eating protein-containing foods. So that is one of the very interesting things that we find is that um, we know that polycystic ovarian syndrome is very, very tightly related to type 2 diabetes as well as obesity and may very well have its roots in the hyperinsulinemia that we see in both of these conditions. If that is the case, then a dietary change such as intermittent fasting or ketogenic diets may very well help reverse uh, this condition. Another great side benefit to lower insulin is better moods, mood stabilization. You feel better. Well, I, I think I was more anxious when I was eating a high sugar, high starch diet. I know I was. I'm a lot calmer now, and people have remarked on that, particularly uh my husband who I live with so he really noticed and I think my moods are much more even I have not experienced what uh, we all read about when women go through menopause and I was put through surgical menopause in a very abrupt way in December of 2016 but I have not experienced uh, wild mood swings or any depression and I feel great I also feel like telling people menopause is no excuse if I'm losing weight I'm losing weight when I first started working with Marie, I would classify her personality as intense and pretty anxious. Um, and, you know, this is one of those things that I don't mind hearing from people too much. You know, I want people to feel like we're available to them and whatnot, but I was hearing from her a lot in the beginning of her journey. I barely hear from her now. And the posts that I see her put out there and the feedback I get is that she is a whole different being. I mean, she is calm. She is finding joy. She was always, I wouldn't say she was negative, but it was hard for her to really tap into joy and to also trust what was happening in her body. So a lot of fear around this and sort of, am I doing enough? And so this kind of even keel and her metabolic flexibility really changed her brain chemistry and most likely her endocrine and her neuro, um, endocrine neurochemistry. Um, drastically enough that she seems to be in a really good emotional place as well as physiologic place. And so by the way, since January 2015, I've lost a total of 47 pounds as of this morning. At 6'1", having a 33-inch waist is rock star awesome. Rock star awesome. We couldn't agree more, Marie. And congratulations on your success. You've been listening to the Obesity Code Podcast, stories and lessons from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.